Mark chapter 9. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he asked. And a man in the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son who was possessed by a spirit that robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. And let us pray. Lord, grant to us at this time your peace, your wisdom, and your faith, the grace that we have to believe in you and to hear your word, we ask in your son's name, amen. Please be seated if you would and grab your Bibles. Mark chapter nine, Mark chapter nine, text that I just read, beginning in verse 14 and going through verse 29. This is a marvelous passage. I, I really love this passage. I enjoy tremendously uh, the anticipation about preaching this text, uh, so much so that uh, I think that in years to come here in the near, not too distant future, we'll probably work our way through the Gospel of Mark so that I can get another shot at this passage because in reality, this text, I think you could probably preach it at least three weeks and possibly more. Some of you might be terrified at that thought. Uh, but there's a whole lot there. Part of the reason why I love this passage so very much is because it's so very human. I, I, can, I can appreciate the humanness of everything that's going on here. Uh, the skepticism and the, the argumentativeness of the teachers of the law. The, the passion the disciples have, the desire they have to drive out this demon. Um, Jesus' frustration well, like, oh, unbelieving generation, the, the, the frustration, the need and the yearning of the boy's father, uh, the, the excitement and the, the gearing up of the crowd. You could walk your way through every character. The boy, actually, the central figure of the story, is the only one whose humanity really doesn't come blasting through to you. But almost everybody else, there's such this human expression but I want to focus, uh, unfortunately, as much as I'd love to walk us through and to touch on every one of these things, there's one particular phrase, there's one particular line in the text 
that I want to focus on, but I want to set the stage to get there. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, you can immediately see that the passage that precedes this is the transfiguration. The transfiguration is that incredibly overwhelming uh, event in Jesus' life and the disciples' experience where the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, up to the top of a mountain, and up at the top of the mountain, they experience, they witness the glory of God. God fills powerfully and shines through Jesus in all of his deity. And you get just this overwhelming, and you can tell it's overwhelming because Peter, you know, kind of stumbles over himself because he's so overcome by this beauty and this majesty of what Jesus appears at the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, that experience ends, and then this, this happens immediately afterwards. Jesus and his three disciples come down the hill. When they get to the bottom of the hill, they look out at the, at the crowd, and there are their disciples arguing with the teachers of the law. And I want you to note for a second uh, verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. Can you imagine that? They were overwhelmed with wonder. Why? When they saw Jesus. Now, I don't, we're left in doubt because the author doesn't explain this. So I don't want to overplay this. But why were they filled with wonder when they saw Jesus? Perhaps there was a little bit of that residual glory that was still shining. Jesus had just been on top of the mountaintop. He'd just been filled with the glory of God. Perhaps there was some of that was, that was still showing when he went down the mountaintop, and that's why the people, the crowd, then see Jesus and are filled with... But notice that the text doesn't explicitly state that. As a matter of fact, I think the implication is that that's not the case. It's simply Jesus. They saw Jesus, and they're overwhelmed with wonder. I, I think of my job as a Christian, your job as a Christian. What, what, are, what are we trying to do? What, what do we desire more than anything? We want our family members, our friends, the coworkers we work with, those who don't know the Lord, we want them to be filled with wonder, to be overcome with awe of who Jesus Christ is. And so I love what this text does. It simply says, and then they saw Jesus, and they were filled with wonder. What is our job? Our job is nothing more than to hold forth Jesus. Get people to see Jesus. Not you, not me, not my expression of Christianity, not my understanding, not my teaching and my thinking, not my understanding of the way Christianity touches the world, not my understanding of the way Christianity has shaped and molded my life. Our job is to get them to see Jesus. So they are filled with wonder. Now, as soon as they see Jesus, Jesus is there witnessing the, the teachers of the law interacting with his disciples, and it's clearly a contentious thing. And so I suspect that Jesus kind of jumps to their defense a little bit. You know, here are some people attacking my disciples, and Jesus kind of jumps to their defense a bit. What are you arguing about? Man says, I brought my son to your disciples. So, he, so already Jesus' fame as a healer has spread through the land, and here's a guy whose son is possessed by an evil spirit and that, that causes him great damage. And so what happens is that Jesus' uh, his disciples are there, 
And so this man comes to Jesus' disciples and says, hey, can you do something? Can you heal my son? Can you save my son? And they have a hard time. They can't do it as, as they explain then to Jesus. And Jesus then responds. So the son says, I've, I brought my, my son to your disciples. The father says, I brought my son to your disciples. They can't heal him. They're disappointed. And Jesus says in verse 19, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? Now, sometimes we have to try to discern the tone of a text. Uh, because as you know, that the way we say things, the tone with which we, we speak about stuff communicates so very much, our body language, all that kind of stuff. But we don't have that reported. We don't know what Jesus' tone was all the time. I think it's really easy to tell what his tone is here. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I have to put up with you? He's frustrated. He's annoyed. Now, why is Jesus frustrated? Jesus is frustrated at the teachers of the law because they are doubting the power to drive out a demon? I don't think so. That's kind of their job. Uh, unbelievers don't believe. And the teachers of the law here don't trust in Jesus, and so they have doubt. So I don't think it's them. Is he angry at the boy? I, I, how can he be? The boy's possessed by a demon. Is he angry at the boy's father? Of course not. The boy's father is the one acting in faith here, bringing the child to, who's he frustrated with? I think he's frustrated with his disciples. I think he's frustrated with his disciples. And while we're not going to get to it, at the end of the passage, when they say, why couldn't we have drive, driven it out? And he says, this is the kind that only comes out by prayer. If Jesus can be snarky, I think he's being snarky. You know, why, hello, this kind can, they all can only be driven out by prayer, and you're not praying. They're not trusting in Jesus. I think it's the disciples that Jesus is mostly frustrated with here when he says, oh, unbelieving generation. And then you get to the father. The father here says he often is thrown into the fire in verse 23. If you can do anything, help us. Now, again, Jesus kind of not, not pushes back a little bit, but if you can... You know, he's like, he, he highlights this fact that the, that the father says, if you can do anything for us, take pity and help us. I, I am completely, this is where the father's humanity comes pouring out to me. I mean, I, I, I sympathize with this. If I'm coming up to a guy who's got a million dollars, I'm not going to say, I know you have a million dollars, let me have some. I'm going to say, you know, hey, if you can help out a little bit, help out. So the father here kind of says, you know, hey, if you can do anything here to help out. I sympathize with the way in which the father asks this question. If you can do anything, can you help us? But of course, that sets up the following line, verse 23, which is so powerful, stated, everything is possible for those who believe. Everything is possible for those who believe. Now, this is a sermon in itself to try to understand what Jesus means by that. Does he mean that we can move mountains if we have faith? Yes, clearly. What, what, what are, there, are there limits? What, what, how do we understand this idea that everything is possible if we have faith? but that's not what we're gonna talk about because I'm really captured by verse 24. And this is the humanity. This is where everything boils over to me and where it touches on where we're going in the next couple of weeks together because the father, the boy's father exclaims what? I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. 
And I think there's nothing more human than that. Because what the boy expresses in that, I do believe, help me in my unbelief, is he expresses, I believe, the situation that every one of us finds ourselves in consistently. And that what we intuitively recognize and know about our own life, that faith, to believe something, is not an on-off switch. We don't either have faith or we don't have faith. We don't believe or we unbelieve that all of us find that faith is some kind of a continuum that we are on, that to believe is we can both passionately at one minute say, I believe, and yet at the other second realize, help me in my unbelief that the existence, the Christian existence is constantly one, not where sometimes we believe and sometimes we don't believe, or all the time we believe and never do we doubt, but this spot where we are consistently always on some kind of a continuum where we kind of believe and we kind of doubt at the same time. Faith in the Christian understanding and the biblical understanding here is not either that you have it or you don't, but that we are constantly on this trajectory, on this pathway, and the Christian faith is moving consistently towards a deeper and richer and greater faith. That's why this boy's father strikes me so deeply because that's the cry of my heart every single day, and I'm desperate for it to be the cry of your heart every single day. I need you to wake up and say, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief because it acknowledges the truth of the statement that we believe. And yet it also acknowledges the statement that we are constantly in a struggle to depend, to trust, to have faith, to believe Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. We're at the very front edge of a 10-week-ish sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. We're gonna look at I believe and then we're gonna work our way through the Apostles' Creed. So you can go ahead and look at the Apostles' Creed together and you'll recognize that uh, it's gonna break itself very well, nicely for us into 10 different statements together as we look at each one to examine that which we believe. Side issue before we get to that. A few minutes ago we said the Lord's Prayer together and we said I believe. And that works out well because the actual, in the Latin it's credo, which means I believe, it's a single person individual. And it's a wonderful expression that way because what the Apostles' Creed does is for each of us, every week when we state it together, we are saying this is what I personally, I believe this. And it's kind of set up that way. I even kind of did it here this morning where I said, Christian, what is it that you believe? I'm inviting you as an individual to say, this is what I believe. But liturgically, part of the church's history throughout the ages, Uh, at different points, the church has responded not with I believe, but we believe. Christians, what is it that you believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ the Son. Okay, and and it's a a corporate expression. Now, I kinda like that. We're we're gonna stick with I believe, but I kinda, I I want in the back of your mind that, that corporate character 
of the Apostles' Creed to hang in there. We'll talk about the Apostles' Creed, the history of it in times to, in weeks to come here, the idea that it has been around for centuries and centuries, that it has been used by the God's people over and over again to articulate their faith. We'll give some background for all of that. But the key thing here is for this church, what does this church believe? What does the, the staff of this church understand? What does the elders, the leadership of this church understand? What is it that we are trying to inculcate for all of us together? What is it that we corporately believe? We're gonna stress not just what I believe, but what this whole group is going to articulate as what we believe, the Apostles' Creed. And we're gonna look at two different sides of the same coin. Uh, I need to emphasize that here because it's going to be easy to think that we're only talking about one thing or the other. Uh, I want you desperately to join together in your minds the next two concepts that I put forward because they are joined in the Apostles' Creed. They're linked in the Apostles' Creed. And the first is this, that when we say, I believe, we are not articulating the power of belief. We're just coming out of the holiday season where if you've watched any movies or any cartoon shows or anything like that, you know that Santa will only come if we believe strong enough. Or you can get your heart's desire if only you desire it, only if you really believe in yourself strong enough, you can get the heart's desire. And so the implication here is that there's something valuable, there's something powerful, there is something built into the whole concept of belief, the, the nature of believing, the nature of having faith, that if you have it with sufficient passion, if you hold with, with your convictions with strong enough sincerity, then great things will happen. And so there's this one movie clip that I like where the guy says, I need you to believe. And he says, in what? And the, and the guy says, it doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe it. Okay, this is utter and I'm trying not to say something really that I'll regret here. <laughs> That's terrible. There, I can say that. That's terrible. And Christians play into that in our language. Because belief is important in the Christian faith, and because we're trying to foster faith in people's hearts, we can talk way too often in such a way that faith itself, that the belief that there's some kind of inherent power if in, the, in the, the convictions, in the sincerity and the power with which we hold our convictions. And so what we're trying to do as Christians is to ramp up people's belief. That's not what we're doing. When a Christian biblically says, I believe, they are talking about something important, our faith is important, but that's because it focuses, it draws our attention to what we believe in. Christians' faith is so important because it is faith in something. We believe in Jesus Christ. It is the content of the Christian faith that distinguishes the Christian from the Muslim, from the Jewish person, from the secular person, from everybody else in this world. It is not the mere fact that Christians are those who have faith, that we have this little quality that allows us to believe or something like that. No, almost any sociologist will tell you, everybody who looks at this kind of stuff will acknowledge that everybody believes. We all put our faith in something, 
But a Christian puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is so important to the Christian life because it directs us and orients us towards Christ. There is an undeniable content aspect to the Christian faith. Christians are not those who believe passionately anything they want or just generically about some God up there. Christians are those who believe passionately in a content, in deliverable, understandable format of the faith. And that's what the Apostles' Creed lays out for us. The Apostles' Creed summarizes the biblical content in a short, brief way of saying this is what we believe. Christian, what is it that you believe? Here are the things that we believe. And it lists out certain propositions that you cannot avoid as part of the Christian faith. This idea that, that faith in itself is something that we are trying to foster as believers misses the mark. Faith is so crucial to the Christian believer because it orients us towards the one we have faith in. That's the focus of the biblical faith. At least that's one side of the coin. And don't lose track of that. It is an undeniable side of the coin. But another undeniable side of the coin is simply this, that in Scripture, belief is never intellectual assent. The Bible has words that say, do you know this to be true? Do you believe this to be true? There are certain ways to say those kind of things. But when the scriptures say that we want you to believe in something, this, is, this gets uh, Greeky, Greeky, and so I'm sorry about this, but in, in the Greek, you don't believe in something, you believe into something. Not always, but the bulk of the scripture use is, do you believe into Jesus? Believing into Jesus the, the word into as opposed to in implies motion, it implies action, it implies the fact that belief is not just something that we have up in our heads. Believing is something that we act out in our lives. We don't believe it biblically until it is shaping, molding, fashioning our lives. That's why we use terms like trust or reliance or dependence or faith or belief. Every one of those terms means the exact same thing. It is applying what we think and what we know to be true in our minds, that's still not Christian belief. Christian belief is when we exercise it, when we act upon it. I'm struggling up here. Okay, let's do this. Everybody stand up for a second, if you can. If you can, stand up for a second. Turn around, look at your chair. Seriously, look at your chair. Do you believe that that chair will hold you? Okay, my guess is that you all say yes. Now, if you believe that chair will hold you, go ahead and sit down in it. Okay, now, biblically, when you were standing and you were looking at the chair and you said, I believe this chair will hold me, you have not exercised Christian faith in that chair. That sounds so weird. Christian faith in that chair happens when you act upon it and you sit down. This is two sides of the coin that the Apostles' Creed is gonna be calling forth for us consistently as we explore this over the next 10 weeks together. 
One, there is an undeniable content to our faith. When Christians believe something, they believe in something. There is an object that is drawing our attention consistently. What is that object? What is it? What's the content that Christians believe? We're going to lay that out. But if you walk away from the end of the 10-week series knowing a whole lot more about Christian faith, you haven't yet exhibited that Christian faith until you act upon it. When the Christian says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, they are saying, I believe, I intellectually know that it is true that God is Father, the maker of heaven and earth. But it also means, built into the very words, that we are acting upon, that you are trusting. It's not just that I know it to be true, it's that I am believing that it. Imagine that you're on top of a mountain. You're on top of a mountain and you need to get down and, and everything is covered with, a, with a, thick, uh, a thick cloud. There's a thick cloud and you can't see anything. A lot of people understand Christian faith. This is actually the way Christian faith is sometimes articulated. You're on top of a big mountain and you need to get down and you just sit there and think, well, I hope the pathway is this way and there's this big cloud over you and you just kind of take a leap of faith and you step off and you hope that you're not gonna die. That's not Christian faith. That's never Christian faith. Christian faith is faith in something. Christian faith is standing there on top of the mountain and the cloud is all around you and you need to get down and you hear a voice. And you hear the voice that says, there's a ledge right here. Trust me, step off right here. And you sit there and say, I can't see the ledge. And they say, but you know me. Take a step right here. Now, if that voice is a voice that you've never heard before, you might sit there and say, uh, where again? But if that voice is the voice of your parent, if that voice is the voice of your spouse, if that voice is the voice of the God who has loved you, cared for you, nurtured you, given everything possible for you, and he says, right here is that ledge. Take a step. That's Christian faith. It's knowing the content that is there and acting upon it, stepping out onto it. That's what we're gonna be exploring together next 10 weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, Father, we ask that you would grant to us exactly that experience, the experience of of knowing more deeply and more richly the faith that you grant to us in Jesus Christ, that we would understand it better, that we would come to grasp the concepts better, that we would see you more clearly, that that would be part of our knowledge. But Lord, not that it would just be dead knowledge, not that we would become smarter about you, but Lord, because of that, we would act in faith, we would take that step of trust, of reliance, of dependence, because we hear your voice and we know your voice. Lord, of course, we need to know it. There's only one way that's possible. As all things, Lord, we need you to work in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would do so powerfully, now and forevermore. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ. He who gave his life for ours, and we pray the way he taught us to pray. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.